Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 217th episode of the award-winning Diverse Minds podcast and it's Black History Month, a momentous occasion to recognise and celebrate the invaluable contributions of black people to British society. Black people have always been at the forefront of social justice movements, fighting against oppression and paving the way for change. However, despite their countless contributions to society, the achievements of black women in particular have too often been overlooked or forgotten. That's why this year the theme for Black History Month is celebrating the exceptional achievements of Black women, with the theme saluting our sisters. It highlights the crucial role that Black women have played in shaping history, inspiring change and building communities. This year's celebration showcases pioneering Black women who have made remarkable contributions to literature, music, fashion, sport, business, politics, academia, social and healthcare and more. And on that note, today I'm speaking with Jimmy Okubanju. The team at Follow Jimmy Worldwide, which is led by Jimmy Okubanju, an experienced ex-corporate executive and operational excellence expert with over 22 years of experience in operations and management consulting, particularly focused in the engineering sector. Jimmy has successfully led operational transformations across multiple industries and has generated over $250 million in performance improvements. She's also worked in energy, mining, infrastructure and financial services, and her extensive experience equips her with a deep understanding of leading successful transformations in various industries. She has a new film. Her film, A Rising Firebird, tells the stories of seasoned professional women of colour who left the workplace due to toxic sexism and racism and how they are rebuilding their lives and careers on their own terms. She's on a mission to get the message of A Rising Firebird to over one million women of colour plus any allies to help overcome toxic work and build their careers and lives on their own terms. So needless to say, I'm hugely excited to have this conversation. So Jimmy, a huge welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm having me, Alela. I'm really excited about being here. Um, and we're really excited to have you. And so I've read out your bio, but I think it'd be really great for listeners to know what you're working on at the moment. So I am just, um, we're in the final stages of producing a documentary feature length film called The Rice Firebird. And it tells the stories of seasoned professional women of color who exited the workplace for various of not so exciting reasons. And we're currently working with helping technical leaders, specifically more of those in engineering, have helping them have difficult conversations, starting with discrimination, starting with exclusion, but really with a view of helping them feel safe enough to talk about that so they can also be better equipped to have difficult conversations beyond that, whether it's whether it's on cultural issues, mental health, mental well-being, but even into spaces like technical risk management, non-technical risk management, health and safety. Um, operational transformation and the, the really the plethora of really powerful but sometimes hard conversations that leaders need to have. And this is such needed work. It's and I it's needed and I want to acknowledge that, but I also want to acknowledge that all of us that work in this space, ideally we don't want to have these jobs because we shouldn't need to have these conversations because in an ideal utopian world, there should be space and equity for everyone. I think that one of the great things of being a filmmaker is um, there'll always be stories to be told, even positive inspirational stories. And I think that in an ideal world, they'd be, from a film standpoint, even more stories to be told. And I think, yes, in an ideal world, 
leaders won't won't struggle with the conversations even around like performance management um and risk management yeah that that is definitely true but then again they may not there may not be any need for engineers in the ideal world because we'll have everything built you won't need bridges or roads or to send people to space because you just I guess be able to go there brilliant yeah and so how did you become someone who equips leaders to hold these important yet what's perceived as difficult conversations what was your journey to this work so there's the probably my my, my my technical journey and the emotional journey so that my my background for over 20 20 years later I've worked in um, operations operational excellence that's basically um helping organizations actually run and do their their do whatever it is they're being paid to do, do that better. And I worked largely in very heavy industrial sectors. So energy, nuclear power, mining, um, infrastructures, like like really infrastructure level construction. So roads and train, uh, train, uh, train tracks, just really complicated, heavy work like that. And so my job has often been, has been, has been to come in when they're trying to really improve what they're doing, deliver their projects safely, more efficiently at a lower cost on time, correctly, and to figure out why they may be struggling in that space. And what I found doing that for, 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 for several decades is that even with technical change, leaders were not able to have certain types of conversations with other technical leaders, financial leaders, people leaders, to unblock major issues. There was incredibly incredible impasse on, on issues and dare I say, you know, a lot of emotion tied to that, even though engineers aren't supposed to feel emotions. Um, there's a lot of emotion tied to that, and they couldn't move past agreeing on the ways of working. This is a massive assumption. At, at a leader at this stage, you should just know X. You should just follow this process. You should just do Y. And coming in with that really strong position that, you know, if you're telling me this, you mean I don't know how to do my job. And so I can't hear you because if I admit you have anything to contribute, that means I don't know how to do my job. And that's in the technical phase. So my job was really, apart from the technical solution rollout, was really getting the senior leaders to begin to have those kind of conversations with senior managers. No, Timothy, we're not rolling out a new... We're not rolling out a new integrated activity planning system or process because you're a bad manager or a bad person. We're, but we do need to still improve the way we're working. And those were very difficult conversations that we coach leaders to have with senior technical leaders. So that's where that understanding and that, that realization of the significance was. But when I came and I made the film Arise Firebird, you know, that came from just my own personal experience. I had had some really, 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 really um, difficult um, experiences in my workplace, especially I'll say the last few years were incredibly terrible, but it had been terrible for, I mean, I, I endured 20 plus years of it thinking it'll get better someday. And if it, it didn't. And um, so that's why I, I took some time I really needed to take some time. I was I was not in the greatest spaces emotionally to kind of figure out what I do next. And that was why I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to take a break from, from management consulting and the technical side of how how how, how are we going to improve a subsea? How, how are we going to improve the deployment of a new subsea 
project or and or, or new water injection system. I'm gonna just take a take a break from that and figure out what I want to do. And through that process of reflection, I thought I'll make a movie. Why not? It's something you know. It seems hard, and I like doing hard things. <laughs> and it was hard, harder than I ever had imagined. I definitely wouldn't recommend someone going through the kind of emotional turmoil I was going through to jump on doing a feature-length film as a solution. But that was where I I made the documentary, and it was difficult for a lot of us who contributed to the film. And as we began to take this documentary into organizations, I also began to notice how it it kept coming up with the senior leaders really struggled sitting through, sitting, not sitting through it, wanting to sit through it. They, those that sat through it found out that they didn't, you know, they didn't spontaneously combust and they were able to walk away with greater empathy and a a really a better appreciation of, okay, we need to do something now. But what we found is that there was a lot of concern leading up to it. And so where the and we found nobody seemed to be comfortable having that conversation. So a leader themselves would be happy with the film, but then how do I talk to somebody else, a peer, a colleague, a subordinate? And that that became really important for me because I rec- I, mean, I do recognize and recollect and you know allegedly you know I, I, I tend to remember that most technical leaders were people. Um, I can't guarantee they all were, but I, I, I think there were at least a few of them. A few of them were humans. And, you know, humans are emotional and it's not a bad thing. It's just, a, it is what it is. And so we can hide, we hide, we often hide fear through inaction. And so what we're now, what we're doing with the movie, especially, particularly with engineering, technical leaders, senior leaders, is we're using this film now to help them get, you know, help them feel safe to start this conversation with their senior managers and hopefully get the senior managers to feel safe starting this conversation with their middle managers and to cascade that down. But it it came really just from discovering that we could definitely provide some support because it's not because they're bad people. I mean, I, taking away the word, any judgment on this issue, um, Leila, even asking a senior, senior leader, senior technical leader to lead a discussion of technical change, it is difficult. And a case, an example, years ago we had to we were working again with a, with a with an asset operator asset they were generating 10 million dollars of value a day and they had a engineering department that sat in a different structure think the matrix they were in a different part of the matrix so they didn't report into this operating asset but they were responsible for very complicated extraordinary maintenance extraordinary repairs what we had to help the engineering team understand is that they they couldn't, even though they understood technically much more about how the asset was run, because many of them designed the asset, and many of them are global subject matter experts on this asset, and many of them, like a, think of like a power plant, many of them had won awards based on the designs they had done, and they they understood this asset really well. The operations team who ran the asset had to be the ones who made the final the final decision of what kind of maintenance work and upgrades were done. And it's difficult, but we understand I'm an award-winning engineer, in some cases scientist, you know, and the maybe the, the technician, while lovely, or the operations engineers are not really engineers, they're just some senior technicians, you know, 
how, I mean, in terms of skill level, I'm holding my hands up at two different levels, you know, for those who can't see psychically. Um, how do you as a executive vice president or senior, or senior director of, of engineering pitch that to your senior scientists that they're going to have to take direction from someone who probably has 10% of their skill set? Because that operated asset maintenance manager, technician, is the one who's ultimately going to be responsible for the output of that asset on a daily basis. They are also the ones, they, they also have to integrate all the other engineering disciplines to decide what's done first. You know, they're also the ones who are going to, they're the ones who have the money. They're the ones who have to manage the, the client, the um, community relations. They're the ones that have to keep the people working there safe. So if someone gets injured, it's the operations team leader that will go to prison of the engineering team. So those aren't necessarily considerations you maybe necessarily need to consider when deciding whether or not an upgrade is needed in that moment. It was a very difficult conversation. And I actually had to, and this is a, the all technical conversation, right? We're not talking about diversity, inclusion, or equity. And there are several situations I had to be in the meetings to help the senior leader broach that conversation with his direct reports. Because many of them, they want to win awards. They want to write papers. They want to contribute to the cutting edge of engineering because they know that will help humanity on a much greater level. And they also, they want to feel they're being valued and they don't want to feel like they're being talked down to. So this was difficult, a difficult conversation. It took months of going, of really wrestling with this and, and supporting the senior leader in being able to have that conversation because understand, he's going to talk to his chief engineers and chief scientists. They have to again go and talk down to the scientists who actually initiate the work. And so this was the piece that we we supported them on. So. I say this in the sense that when I now come into the space and look at cultural transformations, inclusion, equity, diversity being a, a, a very important one, we don't see, I don't see, I often don't see as much support to the leaders working through their own concerns and discomfort and their their concern about kind of backlash and pushback from their own teams. Um, there's almost an assumption, sometimes, not always, but sometimes there's assumption they should just get it because of the, the seniority of their role. And if a senior, you know, rotating equipment, technical authority does not feel that they can talk to other rotating equipment engineers about an area in which they're writing papers on, then I could imagine how that technical authority would feel having to now speak to those same um, rotating engineers about something they feel even less confident or capable of talking about. Yeah, I think your point about fear is often hidden in action is a really, really um, poignant one because we see that all the time. And also this idea that, you know, if you say you don't know something, you're stupid. Uh, you see it in academia, you know, having worked at Imperial and I loved working with engineers, but um, you know, they just want to solve. And, and there's there's often no sitting in the hmm moment because there's such a, a need to solve. So uh, that's super helpful. And going back to your film, Arise Firebird, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, without spoiling anything, um, what the aim is, who you want to see it, um, and what the kind of hope, hope is, you know, by making that film, what was your hope? I didn't really have a big plan. Again, for me, it was a space of, I love you talked about like sitting in the hmm. I really... Going into making a rice firebird, I was probably crying a lot. I was still in that space of crying a lot in the space of really feeling I wasn't competent to do anything. So when I left, um, when I took the break from the from the, from the workplace, I, I left with three things I knew for sure. And this was just from, from again, decades of my career. This, this isn't really down to any one particular person, but I left knowing that I was 
human garbage. I had a life that was not worth that was not worth living, and I was not competent or qualified to do anything. Those are the three things I knew for certain. So coming into Rice Firebird, I was like, you know, coming into the documentary, but this is just gonna be a new chance for me to learn. And I'm gonna treat this first film like I'm going to film school. I'm just gonna be open and get as much information and, and learn as much as I can with no expectation about what would happen, um, except for the, the hope that I would complete it. And I think when the as the film, as the, the as as it progressed, and I remember especially after when we finished the filming, the actual camera work. When we finished the actual camera work, I began, to, I realized that, you know, I do know how to run projects. I do know how to lead people. Just some of the things that I have been used consistently, just all kinds of things. I mean, I've been told about my hair being wrong. So it's like, it's, you just, you sound too American or I get like, you know, you just, you sound too much like on a, on a Friday and it's like a Wednesday afternoon. Like how, how is, what's the, what does that even mean you know like so but they're just things that were said and it just it this having a space helped me remember i am good at doing a lot of things and i'm capable and competent and that was probably a big part of the film just the process the project of running that very complicated project helped me kind of reconnect with myself professionally my my hope with the movie shifted i definitely thought there's i definitely think and thought there's real value in the movie being a witness to what had happened. So at least those around me would stop asking me to kind of relive everything. And because they they weren't sure that, you know, maybe some something you said kind of, you know, maybe you, you kind of asked for it. You kind of asked to be threatened and intimidated and chased on the street and called the N-word. Maybe, maybe you asked for that somehow. So just watch the movie. And then I, it's even a TED talk now. And then you can answer those questions without having me to say, this is why I didn't um, do that. I think as it progressed, I feel it's, there's definitely value in people who've gone through this or going through this or love someone who's going through this to, do, to know they're not alone. Um, so in terms of wider, and, and eventually the film will be more widely released. We're aiming 2025, 2026. It's quite a bit for it for it to be widely released. But the real big thing for me, Leila, is really with leadership. I mean, one, because that's the last, my, my career has largely been working in those in those spaces. Um, technical leadership, especially, because leaders set the culture and leaders set the tone. And when I, we've done, we did, we did a screening event with Harvard, we did an event with the Women Association for Women in Science. And the questions often come up in terms of how, what can companies do to make a better environment? What can or what can I, as a person who's gone through this, do to make a better environment? And ultimately, for an individual, really, it's going to talk about harm reduction strategies, which are still great, you know. But harm reduction strategy isn't resolving the underlying issue, and and there's plenty of material out there about harm reduction strategies. And we have we even have like a return to a return to work six point six point plan that for anyone who's going through that to follow. But ultimately, the real heavy, is it heavy lifting? The real work is done by leadership. And, and we all know this, but we hope with the film, just by getting more leaders to watch the movie and, and then have a discussion amongst themselves, we do think it will help build empathy. And with empathy, you don't need a 45 plan implementation project because you can bake that empathy into the work they're currently doing. So our hope with the film is that 
we can use this to help build leadership empathy. So they, they know how to pull for the right support from their DEI teams, HR teams, but also from their project teams. The senior leader, you're going to a project team, you've got 500 people. You know, we're having a health and safety review. You're in that space. You, if, with greater empathy, you'll know that the people of color aren't talking and we need their input from the health and safety plan. So we can know why are we not getting a wider range of inputs because we'll be safer if everybody brings that in. We can look for ways with, with greater empathy. We can encourage leaders to consider ways to bake in the conversation into what they're already doing, into their existing cultural and business transformation projects. That's what we're, I'm hoping to really use that the film for. So it's really about underpinning initi ongoing initiatives, whether there are cultural change, diversity, equity, inclusion, mental health, mental well-being, but also to really help them look at how they can help this underpin their business, their operational. I say business, I mean, you know, operational um, improvement projects as well, because there's always going to be the overlap. Yeah. So that, yeah, I really, um, I, I, again, I just so resonate and I'm not trying to take over or um, claim your story as mine, but having to constantly explain things. I think that's brilliant to hear different perspectives because we know there isn't one black experience. Um, and also the point about systemic change without really ramming it down people's throats with data. Um, and the way you described how you were feeling when you left uh, the job uh, before you started the film project, clearly that's not feeling mentally optimum or mentally particularly well. Um, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth and I'm not trying to diagnose you, but thinking about work that makes people particularly women of color mentally unwell what do you think the biggest challenges are in accessing support to come out of that i think for women of color for suppose anyone going through toxic work i mean i so i think back to the ted talk we talk about you know believe act believe listen listen believe and act i think that one of the things that one of the big challenges is when when we go to people for support um we're not but i wasn't believed i really wasn't believed even by people in my own network, even by other black women, even by other women of color and men, and my ministers, um, the view of it can't be that bad or you should be grateful. Or, Are you sure? Are you sure? Were you even there when that guy said that thing to you? Were you there when he said it to you? You know, maybe you were somewhere else when he said that to you. But no, I, I, I was I was actually I was the only person there like you. <laughs> you weren't there. I was there when that happened. So, of course, believing is important. And people say, well, well, we need context. You know, if we don't ask these questions, we're not going to fully believe. And so now I'm, a, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And and I don't I don't get asked as much for people to, to, to have me convince them it happened. I mean, there are people who, who aren't convinced that is true. But I, I have not been in a work situation where I'm, I've talked about it and they say, well, I, sure. They, I tend to be believed. And I think, I yeah, I, so I say that we, we do need to, to believe. I think we need to support people by listening and not saying, well, you know what? I know exactly what it's like, what you're going through, Jimmy. You see, when I went to uh, Florida on vacation, they lost my bags. So I know what it's like to be discovered. Yes, exactly. You know, and they and then they called me, you know, a Brit. And that moment I knew because it took them 25 whole minutes to get my bags. 
what exactly your 45 years of experience has been. Yes. Now I understand. So he can shut up. I allied, you know, take out their cape and wave, put on their ally cape and put, I don't know. So I think we have to listen and let, and, and let, we have to really hold space. And the bigger thing is, is to take action. And that's harder because we're going to make mistakes. So we have to make mistakes. What One of the things that helped move me out of where I went through, what I went through, was honestly the person I least expected. I least expected this. And um, and so in some ways, the kudos to the, to the profession. But honestly, I least expected it. It was my GP. I know, my doctor, my general practitioner in the UK. I kid you not. Because I was calling for some migraine medication when all this was getting really bad. And I started to cry on the phone. And he was like, I don't think you can go back to work. And I'm like, they won't let me not go back to work. And he, and I began telling him what was going on at work and how I was being treated and how it was. And he was, he said, you know, I don't think you, I don't think you can go back. And it was when hearing someone else say what I just thought was my fault. It was the first time someone could affirm that. And that was a GP. And he called back a week later to make sure I was doing okay. And if I was agree to take some time off. So I say this because he took a risk calling out what he saw. I was not prepared to, even as bad as it was, to not do something. To, to do something. It took someone else saying that in my situation. And in the film, you hear about the points in which in some of the cases, it was somebody else that was able to have a difficult conversation with someone they loved that got them to admit that there was a problem that was going on. I understand I was having, I was having heart palpitations, um, severe chest pain, but I was constantly living in that level of, of pain, um, thinking I was having a heart attack. I was, I'm going to give okay, a bit of a woman moments. I would be, I would have my time of the month for weeks in terms of the level of stress I was under and I was still going back and it did take somebody outside of me saying listen this does not seem like a safe environment for you to go back to um so I would say that for for us I feel I think the big thing what I would say for someone is if you're seeing someone who's going through that even if it looks like they're coping you don't that's not how trauma works trauma affects our brains it affects our, our, our mind, our body, and our behavior. Often the response is, and this came from the Rise Firebird, you know, everyone was to double down and work harder in the face of abuse. So it may take, so this is really for loved ones, for those who care about us, friends, it may take you taking that risk and having a conversation and saying, listen, I don't think you're coping with this. And I think, can you, what, what is actually going on? I think difficult conversation, but difficult yeah, conversation. I, but I think it's so true because I think when you're so in it and you're so unwell, you're terrified, and you think I've just got to get through this bit. I've just got to get through this bit. I've just, and by the time you've done that, you've hit burnout and crisis point. And if so, if no one, if no one has that, if no one flags it to you, and they may have to do it three, four, five times, 
and just say, you know, I want to come with you. Like, should we just go speak to someone? And it is tricky, but it is possible. I think that's so true. Just when you were saying, you know, our reactions to double down and work harder. I was laughing, not because it's funny. I was laughing because I was like, mm-hmm, yep, you're, yep. <laughs> it's funny though. It's like, yeah, you're going to have a bullet wound in your leg and an arrow in your head. Yeah, if I can just. I just, this is one email. Just one email. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. something I would say that I would encourage leaders maybe not to do is maybe not to say, if you're struggling, say something, you know, if because that puts even more pr- pressure on the victim. And, and I'll be fair, it's victim shaming. It, it's not the intention, because you're like, well, just tell me, I'll do something. That is a form of victim shaming, I think, anyway. Um, what I would suggest is the conversation needs to go to the leaders, like to the managers and to the colleagues. If you see someone who is struggling, say something that's what i would suggest because for someone who we don't know how unwell someone is and just to give a context uh, there are people alive today that are getting electroshock therapy because for various reasons it it is believed to provide some value they're under the care of psychiatrists it's not you don't just go on the street and you get it you don't know if the person next to you, what kind of support they're actually getting, because it's not something that they particularly would want to advertise. So to ask somebody who is, I think to ask someone who may be going through something very severe and may not be getting that, maybe they need something, that level of support and they're not getting it, but they're just coming to work and then they just may not be able to recognize for themselves. They need to get help. And so this is where leaders, managers, colleagues need to recognize that I, you know, I think she might be struggling. I remember in one role, I actually was telling my leaders I was struggling. And in a meeting, I was publicly shamed for saying that, that we're all suffering here. It's a tough job. I remember her, my, I remember the, the uh, senior executive, that is what they said to me. And I took it in. And so I never said anything after that so we have to understand that how do we not it, it's yes people should say something if they're able to but as a le- as leaders we also have a duty of care and this is why for us having that difficult conversation that's a hard conversation how do you now broach it with someone that you think could be at risk as a leader like who do you talk to about that did you say hey john i think you're acting a bit you know, probably not. Everyone knows not to do, well, not everyone. I can't say that. Some people, that may be how they would approach it because, you know, they're a funny, funny person. There is humor. So I just, I, I really do feel like we need to create more spaces for, for managers, senior leaders, pe- people who manage people, not HR, but people who actually manage people to problem solve these kinds of things. Where do they go to get advice from? Is it their friend Bill who's, you know, who takes it just as lightly? Is it the DEI leader who sits five levels below them? Right? Is it their head of the CFO who's like, this is not my job? Where do they go? Where do especially most senior leaders go? So problem solve. Like I'm seeing this and I'm concerned. Where? And that's what we're really hoping to do with our project is to create the spaces for leaders to be able to go back and say, I've seen this, I'm concerned. What do you think I should do? And have someone who's also on that journey to give them some meaningful advice and point them in the right direction. And it may be actually, we do need to have um, a mental health, a wellness person at our level 
who can field these kind of inquiries, who's more senior, who understands what we're trying to deal with. And, and asking for budget for that is a difficult conversation. Mm. Um, and don't forget, everyone, check out my ebook, The Mentally Healthy Leading Manager, which does touch on some of the things that Jimmy has uh, talked about. And I think that's the thing. I Very insightful. The I'd never thought of it as victim shaming, and I can totally, totally see that. And I think that it's all very well saying talk to someone, but every time I have in my own family, actually more less so in workplaces, but when I've tried to talk about things, I get shut down. So you're not then going to go to a workplace, which feels very vulnerable with people mm. who don't really look like you and start. Sometimes it can be easier, but you don't know which way it's going to go. And it feels terrifying. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I just think that it's, it's, I think it's very Eurocentric to say, just, you know, just talk, just do this because you don't know the cultural frameworks people are operating in either. Um, and, you know, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to push together all Euro cultures either, but I think in the global North, there is more of the thing around, you know, Instagram culture talking about it. And I think in global majority cultures, um, and the global South, it's, it, diaspora it's just not the same and I think then encouraging people to find those words and having the systems where people can do that is much more important I, I would even 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 with the even taking um, even even beyond that we know for example men well we know there is studies that suggest and I have found men commit suicide at work at much higher rate in this country it's going to be largely white men so there is a need, regardless of the culture, for us to be looking out for each other. Because that and for someone at that level, you know, they probably need someone to reach out to them. So we do need to, to reach out. I also realize a lot of people, regardless of ethnicity and culture, have childhood trauma, have work trauma, have some um, have been victims of crime. Um, on we have people who are neurodiverse. So we have a lot of people. So if we just assume that because for some part of the population who will speak out because maybe they, they don't have those factors and they have not faced acute abuse, we can't take an approach for basically the healthy and apply that to people who are not necessarily in the best spaces. Saying, well, you know what? You could also run three marathons too and to raise awareness for workplace abuse. One could do that. That would also raise awareness, but we can't just say we're going to take what the healthiest person with the most success, the most access, with the most support, and we're going to use that to be the advice we give people. Mm -hmm. Because then basically we're finding people often aren't saying very much. Yeah, absolutely. So on that then, on that point about mental health and well-being and the work that you do now, Jimmy, how do you look after your own mental health? What are your top three tips that you'd like to share with listeners? Oh, right. So I think about my seven, my six return to health things. But I think one is community. And I mean that deliberately. I, I intentionally seek out people who could encourage me on my journey and who have been on a journey of their own. And and I have people around me who honestly tell me amazing things. I have a lot of people who are happy to, happy to criticize. That's the that's human nature. So I know people who walk down the street and say, Jimmy, your dog is ugly. I don't even know who you are. Your name's in your t-shirt. That's how I know your name. But that dog, it's an ugly dog. I just want you to know, good day. We have a lot of that. So I look for people who who are much more positive, understand. Um, and I, and I, I want to be clear. I know we talk about constructive feedback, the harsh truth, and tough love. I have got a lot of the constructive, I've got a lot of the 
constructive criticism. I've got all the criticism. I've got all the harshness. I've got all the toughness. So I'm really so a part of my mental health is is getting support from the more of the the love, the um the love, the compassion, support, the cheerleading. And that's a big part because I'm I'm probably my worst critic, my own worst critic. I probably think what I do is even worse than what it actually is. And I have so many voices of past employers, the ghosts of past employers past rattling on in my brain. So that's a, a big part for me, I think. Yes, it's a. It, I suspect for a lot of for a lot of us, we are getting a disproportionate amount of negative feedback. Understanding it can take four to five pieces of positive feedback to counter one piece of negative feedback. And so, we say, well, we'll give the positive the positivity sandwich, one piece of negative feedback, a po- positive, negative, positive. We know that formula. We know you're giving me something positive only for, to prepare for the forty five minutes of just assassination. So no, it, that. Positive feedback sandwich doesn't work. It, it's I think it, it's just it's it's a ploy. Um, no, I challenge someone to give just unrestrained positive feedback. I think they may start spitting out blood. Like what? You know, just tell them what they're doing well for like thirty minutes and walk away. You know, so there's a bit of I think it's hard for a lot of us. So I have people in my life who can give me positive feedback. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it's really important for me to have that. That's one. So my community, a supportive, encouragement community, inspiring that inspires me, and that. I inspire them. A second thing for me is really is rest and taking space, taking the space and time away I need. So I'm the kind of person now that I will happily leave a group and have lunch on my own. It's not antisocial. I don't I don't need to have I don't need to work my 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 morning, have lunch with you and have work and work with you in the afternoon. Does it make you a bad person or me a bad person? I actually value my alone time. So hotel events going away for work and having to spend time with clients i'm very clear i will spend my evening alone you'll see me in the lounge you'll see me doing stuff that's time i need to spend with myself and it's important for me to be happy and restored to just spend time with people that you know you know just with myself or people i love or just with my own thoughts and i feel it's okay it's really really okay to just take a break from people you know, every single day that I go to work, every single day, um, it makes me better. It makes you know, makes me more. It makes them happier to see me when I come back. I guess, and if not, I'm happier. I think the final thing for me has been purpose, finding the purpose in what I do. I mean, I'm fortunate I get to do that with my day job. Um, but even even though I say that, there's still elements that are even more aligned to my purpose. So I do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of mentoring, coaching, listening sessions for women of color, people of color who have been, who are struggling with work. I do that for free because it does help me. It helps me reconnect with why I'm doing what I'm doing. It, it helps me, you know, when, when I go to a, a, a pitching to an executive and they're like, well, no, we don't have this problem in our company. We have that one black woman, Tanika, her, about 10,000 people. Yeah, she made us as a manager. So glass didn't work, smashed. You're lying, Jimmy. I, I still get calls like that. Um, being able to go back and, and being able to do connect with my true purpose and remind myself this is why I'm doing it helps keep it in balance and helps also remember that no, what he's saying is, it helps you remember what he's saying isn't about me. So being able to connect to my higher purpose helps me not take things so personally. It still hurts. I still cry. I still, I still, get, I still cry sometimes from some of the calls I get, um, mainly you know, from 
because why do I want to go back into engineering? I, I like to punish myself, I guess. But they're also great people in engineering. I do love, I do, I do. I. So why do I want to go back to engineering? Scratch that. Why do I want to go back to engineering? Because they're great people there. But sometimes people say things that are that are really upsetting and having having taking the space, taking the break and also being able to do, re, make sure I'm really directly working with the people I'm, who are both impacted by this helps me. Thank you so much, Jimmy. And of course, I would have included the links on the show notes, but if people want to contact you and know more about your work, how should they do that? Um, the best way is check out our website, www.arisefirebird.com. And if you're interested in, in, we're doing a series of right now, complimentary executive roundtables, and we're looking for organizations to co-host them with us. If, they're, if you're interested in co-hosting and bringing some execs together to discuss difficult conversations, diversity, inclusion, equity, and beyond. They can also send us an email at hello at arrivefirebird.com. Thank you so much. What a brilliant episode. So please, people, if you enjoy it, do comment and share, share with your colleagues. Um, And it's been a joy to have you, Jimmy. Thank you so much as part of our Celebrating Our Sisters series. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure to be here. I'm so honored. Take care, everyone. Until next time. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.